Hello, and welcome to my podcast. My name is Sarah, and I'll be reading stories from my book collection in a manner that hopefully makes you feel comforted and relaxed. I will be publishing one chapter at a time, two times a week, so I hope you continue to tune in and enjoy the stories I bring you. Our first book is a condensed novel called Sarah Wicks by Diane Pearson. Let's get reading. This is Sarah Whitman, a condensation of the book by Diane Pearson. That's a short prologue. Sarah wasn't a looker, not like her ma had been, but Charlie loved her in his own quiet way, and all his fat, jolly Billingsgate relations were sure that quite soon, just as soon as times got better, he and the gentle young school teacher would wed. But those were the depression years, and times didn't get better. Not that being single worried Sarah. She had her family, she had her work, she had her dreams. Of all the wonderful things that might happen, of the exciting places she might visit. And if Charlie had no place in these dreams, well, neither did the attractive David Barron, for all his foreignness and dangerous socialist ideas. She knew anyway that Dreams were only dreams. Love was, life was for living. And to be poor was not necessarily to be miserable. Sarah's story begins in the 1920s, when a visit to the cinema meant two pictures, a stage show and an organ in the interval, all for six pence. When scratchy gramophones played Ramona, and a day on the river was a golden time to remember and cherish. It was a time of great hardship, but a time, too, when dreams, if you didn't fuss about them overmuch, had a way of coming true. Chapter 1 There was to be another public thrashing in the hall. Throughout the morning, an air of hysteria had been growing steadily in the classroom. Sammy Alexander had been sent for at playtime by the headmistress, and he was now locked in the staff room cupboard, awaiting his punishment. Sarah found the atmosphere infectious. To be thrashed by Miss Bennet was terrible enough, but a public thrashing took on the sanctity of capital punishment. It was reserved for such depravities as stealing, bad language, or other crimes which came under the general heading of filth. The last lesson before the dinner bell should have been arithmetic, but as Sarah found it difficult to control the mounting panic in the classroom, she gave up trying to teach the ambiguities of nine apples cut in quarters and distributed among three boys and three girls. Instead, she passed round paper and colored chalks and drew a map of the world on the blackboard for the children to copy. As she sat down at her desk, she could hear the concentrated breathing of 37 children 
and the occasional snap of a chalk stick as someone pressed too hard. She could also hear sniffling and stifled whispering. Stop whispering, Gertie, she said, without looking up. Gertie Alexander, sister of the condemned Samuel, began to cry. The two children usually fought with one each other, one another so much that they had to be seated at opposite ends of the room. But in an emergency, family unity brought them together. Bring your map to me, Sarah said gently. Gertie came up, sobbing miserably, and Sarah caught the smell of her. It was the smell of the whole class, the aroma of malnutrition, chalk, and dung from the farrier's yard that ran alongside the playground. This farrier's yard was the cause of the present trouble. The school liked playing running up the dung hill. This involved a long, speed-gathering flight across the farrier's yard and a final leap to the top of the dung hill. Sammy Alexander was so good at this sport that he had become bored. A mixture of bravado and goading from the other boys had compelled him to plaster dung all over Miss Bennett's bicycle. Sarah stared down at Gertie and hoped that her tears would not spread to the rest of the class. Show me your map, Gertie. She held out her hand, wishing that Gertie's mother wouldn't dress the child's head with a butterfly bow. It didn't match the dingy blue-gray smock and the boots with splitting seams. Gertie continued to cry. That's very good, dear, Sarah said. But you've crayoned all of Africa red. It should be nearly all red, but not quite. It's India that is all red. Gertie sniffed and wiped the sleeve of her smock along her upper lip. What's going to happen to Sammy, miss? He will have to be punished. He was very, very naughty. Secretly, she admired Sammy's courage. At eight, he had dared to do what she, at twenty-one, dared not. He had challenged the terrifying authority of Miss Bennet. Now, Gertie, go back to your seat and redo the British Empire in red. Copy what I've done on the board. Tense silence settled again. Sarah wondered gloomily if the morning and the thrashing would ever be over. On the window, sill, stood Class Three's attempts at gardening, flaccid runner beans glowing, growing out of wet blotting paper. Sometimes, when she looked at them and thought of the green, lush runner beans in her pa's garden, she wanted to run away and get a train back home to the village. She thought of the clean sky and the wind and her father cutting logs. She hated the runner beans on the blotting paper. There were times, too, when she looked out of the classroom window and watched the clouds being blown to the south. She imagined them drifting over her pa's cottage in Sussex and away over the downs to the sea. And in her mind, she would travel to Spain and Egypt and down through Africa. The classroom would become smaller and stuffier and she would be filled with impatience for all those strange countries. The color and the huge wild horizons, all exciting things she had read about but never seen. But someone was knocking on the classroom door. It opened and Miss Enderby scurried in, 
plucking nervously at her jumper suit and trying to smile without letting her top denture slip. Miss Whitman, she whispered, you are to report to the head's room at once. I will look after class three for you. Sarah felt the blood drain back down into her feet. Class three was silent with dread. Pupils and teacher united in terror. Sarah smoothed her hair, worn low, one coil over each ear, and left the classroom. She was only in the second term of her first year's probation, and the way things were going, Miss Bennett could not fail to give her a bad report. She would almost certainly be out of work at the end of the year. The post had been incredibly difficult to find. It was 1926, and any work was hard to find in those depression years. Her training had been unorthodox. She had left school at 14 to go into domestic service. Then at 15, thanks to her village schoolmaster who deplored any wasted talent, she had gone to work in an East London church school. In return for caring for a class of 30 infants, she had been given her keep and intensive evening tuition. Eventually, she had qualified for a teacher's training college where she had lived on small grants and whatever money her father could spare from his narrow income. At 21, when she at last qualified, Sarah was flush with the success of her six-year fight, but she waited for weeks with many other unemployed teachers in the office of the local education committee. Finally, the teacher at her old church school had recommended her to Miss Bennett as a good girl from a poor but Christian home. Thus, Sarah had a double responsibility to perform well as justification for her father's years of unselfish economy and because Miss Bennett had taken her as a favor to her friend. Every time she was rebuked or humiliated by Miss Bennett, her fear of a bad report to the committee grew worse. There were nights when she found it impossible to sleep for worrying about it. The door of the headmistress's room had a panel of pale gray glass, the same color as Miss Bennett's eyes, and as cold. Sarah knocked timidly. Enter. As Sarah came into the room, she saw that Miss Bennett was seated, but Miss Bennett's sitting, like her walking and her talking, was tense and barely controlled. She was in her late forties, hard and vigorous and today her mouth was even more rigid than usual. Miss Whitman, she said, I'm beginning to wonder if you have any idea at all of how to discipline children. Have you any idea what that miserable, filthy Sammy Alexander has done now? He has climbed out of the cupboard window and run away, Miss Whitman. Miss Bennett lifted a register from her desk and crashed it down hard. The pen tray rattled on the desktop. Sarah swallowed. I think he was probably afraid. And so he should have been. Yes, Miss Bennett. Sarah stared at the floor. That child will either be brought back to the school by the school inspector or he will be brought back by you. I need hardly tell you that if the inspector has to bring him back, it will read very badly in your report to the committee. Miss Bennett stared contemptuously at Sarah. And one other thing, Miss Whitman. 
It has been observed that a man waits for you occasionally at the staff entrance. I would be obliged if your followers could wait elsewhere. It gives the school a bad name. Sarah felt humiliated and ashamed. He's a friend of my family, she said angrily. He just comes to see me sometimes. She realized how feeble the excuse sounded. Also, it was untrue. She was very fond of Charlie Dance. Miss Bennett picked up a pen. You may go, Miss Whitman. Her stare had said everything. That Sarah was here as a personal favor. That her blue woolen dress was old-fashioned. Her stockings were of black wool instead of fashionable beige silk. That she was the daughter of a village postman. And that she did not know how to behave like a schoolmistress. Feeling sick. Sarah left the room. Sarah had large, hazel eyes, high cheekbones, and the rich cream and pink complexion of a country girl. She was well-built, too well-built for the styles of the twenties, so that even if she could have afforded the fashionable narrow-hipped frocks, she would not have looked right in them. She walked badly because she thought she was big and unattractive, but on the rare occasions when she forgot this, she had an eager swinging stride, and sometimes she would wear a flower or a scarf in a certain way and would look vivid, somehow different. She appealed especially to older people, because her face was young enough to register hope, but humble enough to register compassion. Above all, she had perseverance, which drove her, sometimes miserable and afraid, through whatever ordeal awaited her. So after, the sc after school that day, she set out grimly for the old Kent Road. The Alexanders lived six floors up in a prison-like block of three-room flats with a sink on each landing which was shared between two families. She paused at the bottom of the stone stairs to gather courage, and a man with a fish barrel walked past her, shouting, Shrimpo, Shrimpo. When he saw her waiting on the bottom step, he said, Wanna buy some shrimp stuff? You get a live crab with every pint. Sarah looked into his enamel tray and saw the small brown crabs lying in half an inch of water. Several were dead and the remaining ones moved feebly. No thanks, she said, shuddering. Taking a deep breath, she began to climb the stairs. On the fifth flight, she passed Gertie Alexander, sitting on a step, eating bread and dripping. Gertie's eyes grew round when she saw Sarah. Good afternoon, Gertie, said Sarah, pretending a confidence she did not feel. Is your mother in? Gertie gulped and nodded, and Sarah continued on up the steps. On the sixth landing, a man in a vest was washing at the sink. He stared at Sarah. She knocked on the Alexander's door. She could hear voices shouting inside. It's no use knocking, he said. They'll think it's the tally man come for his money and they won't answer. He pushed her out of the way and beat on the door with both fists. George, George. Shut up talking and open the door. 
The hubbub inside stopped abruptly, and the door was opened by a thin, tired-looking man. Yes, he said quietly. I'm the school teacher, Sarah said. I wonder if I could have a word with you, Mr. Alexander. It's about Sammy, a little spot of bother at the school. The wife takes care of all that kind of thing, said Mr. Alexander, unruffled. All right, then, you'd better come in. They went to a tiny room, crowded with men, all sitting around a table. This year's the school teacher, explained Mr. Alexander, and there was a scraping of chairs as the men stood up, mumbling. Evening, miss. Pleased to meet you, miss. She was acutely embarrassed. They had the servile, humble look that she had occasionally seen on her father's face when he was talking to the village gentry. It was as if her official position somehow made her superior. I'm sorry to disturb you, she said nervously. The wife's in the kitchen, said Mr. Alexander. She nodded and walked towards the kitchen door. Then she noticed that one of the men, a young one at the head of the table, had not stood up. Logically, she was annoyed. As she passed him, he said, Good evening, and returned to the study of some papers. He had intense brown eyes and a pale, serious face. Before she could close the kitchen door behind her, she heard him saying, Let's waste no more time. We still have a lot to decide. Mrs. Alexander was tall and thin and gave the impression of a woman who expected the worst and usually got it. Her face was white, her hair simply hacked off. She gave Sarah a small half twitch of her mouth, a tired courtesy of a smile. I thought someone would be along ever since Sammy told me. Sit down then. Sarah sat feeling faintly surprised. She was sure that if she had run away from a thrashing at school, would she not have told her mother? Sorry, she would not have told her mother. So he nipped off before you could cane him then. Mrs. Alexander was putting slices of bread onto plates. Sarah began to think Mrs. Alexander was so unruffled about the whole thing that there would be no difficulty about getting Sammy back to school. The headmistress feels her authority has been flouted, she said. She sent me to persuade you to send Sammy back. Mrs. Alexander began to take cups down from the dresser. thought that's what you'd come for, she said kindly. What a nice woman Mrs. Alexander was. So you'll send him back tomorrow? Sarah asked. No, Mrs. Alexander smiled. He's a little horror, I grant you that. His father will wallop him for his dirty ways, but I can't send him back to school. He's too terrified of those public beatings. She reached for a teapot. You know, that Miss Bennett... She enjoys the beatings. There's something wrong with her. I've watched her. She never did it to me. I made sure I never did nothing wrong, but I've watched her beating the others. Shocked, Sarah realized that Mrs. Alexander was only a few years older than herself. 
Probably only twelve years had elapsed since she had been at Miss Bennet's school. Mrs. Alexander measured three spoons of tea into the pot. Of course, I know the school inspector can make Sammy go back, but I'm not sending him back to that, whatever he's done. It wasn't the school rules that Mrs. Alexander was flouting. It was the something in Miss Bennet that made her coiled hair come unwound when she thrashed children, that made her hands shake with rage when anyone defied her. Sarah knew she had no right to make terms, but... If I promise to persuade Miss Bennet to thrash Sammy privately, she said, will you let him come back tomorrow? Mrs. Alexander stared anxiously into her eyes. Oh, it's not going to be easy, Sarah went on quickly. I'm new to this school, and she doesn't like me very much, but I promise to do my best. You see, if we leave this to the inspector, we'll all be in trouble, and he'll get the thrashing anyway. Oh, I wouldn't want you to get into trouble, Mrs. Alexander twisted her apron, then faltered. All right, if you think we you can persuade her sorry if you think you can persuade her i'll send him back in the afternoon i'll go see her in the morning said sarah and stood up in the next room the men were standing now and the young one was stuffing papers into her carrier bag sarah nodded as she passed goodbye and hurried to the door mr alexander smiled by then, he said kindly, hope it's all sorted out. She started downstairs, feet pounded after her, and she drew to one side for the men to pass. Good night, miss. Good night, miss. Finally, the young one came, engrossed in conversation with his companion. It will work, he was saying, if we organize properly. The way he pronounced work wasn't quite right she wondered if he were foreign. She pressed against the wall to let them pass abreast. Good evening, she said. His companion's cap came off and he mumbled, night miss. The young one stared at her without even seeing her, even though to get past her he had to twist sideways and change his bag from one arm to the other. His indifference was the final depressant in a day that she that had been disastrous. When she reached the bottom of the stairs, she had to fight a strong desire to sit down and rest her head against the dirty wall. Tomorrow she had to face Miss Bennet. She felt tired out and already a failure. I want to see Charlie, she thought suddenly. If I go and see Ma dance this evening, Charlie may be there. Or she went out. On the, to the pavement, her foot knocked against something. She looked down and saw one of the shrimp man's crabs. It was dead. I want to see Charlie, she said aloud, and her eyes filled with tears. After tea that night, she went upstairs to her room, rummaged at the back of her underclothes drawer, and brought out a small box of neutral-colored face powder. She rubbed a little of it carefully across her nose, and then hid the box again and blew the telltale traces from the dressing tabletop. 
She knew Aunt Flory herself wouldn't care if she used her face powder. She was bothered that the next time Flory saw her paw, she might mention it. She was grateful to her stout Aunt Flory dance, and her even stouter Uncle Max for having her as a boarder, but she wished they didn't take their chardship so heavily. She put her hat and coat on and went downstairs. She opened the front door. Just going to see Ma dance, she called, closing the door and running quickly away down the street. The evening was cold, but there were tight green buds on the trees in Trinity Square. The sky was rosy, and the wind had dropped. At last, she could smell spring. She swung out of the square and passed the pub on the corner, where someone was singing always in a rich, porty voice. I wonder if I can afford a new dress this spring, she thought. Cream with a sailor collar and a sash around the hips. She felt breathless with excitement because spring was coming and something must be going to happen to her. Charlie opened the door himself, and when he saw her, his round, good-natured face beamed. Lovely, he said. I didn't know you was coming round, Sari. Lovely. Charlie thought she was wonderful. That was why she had wanted to see him so badly. She managed a smile. I thought I'd better see how Ma was, she said. Always better when you come around, Sari. Wish you boarded with us instead of Maxie. Love to have you, we would. Only there's such a lot of us. There were so many of the dances, in fact, that Sarah had never really worked out the ribald, red-faced, generous total. In the same street and in adjoining streets were settled dance daughters and sons and grandchildren, all living in and out of each other's houses. Dances who died were wept over, then their photographs were prominently displayed on mantelpieces, and cherubunks were hired on the anniversaries of their deaths to take the family smothered in floral tributes to the cemetery. Then they all went back to Mon Paws for a slap-up tea. When a dance fell out of work or a husband died, the rest of the family moved in to help everyone cut back on expenditures. If a dance had a win on the horses, there was a party after, in which at least two dance wives got pregnant again. Ma Dance presided over the tribe, though seventy and huge and bronchial with dropsical legs. Beloved by all, she was still able to tell a daughter-in-law exactly what she thought of her, the way children should be reared, the husbands managed. Her grandchildren adored her, though she couldn't remember all their names. She had for them all an inexhaustible supply of interfering, noisy, and insensitive love. Sarah had only just stepped inside the door when Ma's thick, gravelly voice rasped down the stairs. That's our Sari, then. Come on up and see old Ma dance, darling. Sarah climbed the narrow stairs between the walls papered in a brown fruit and flower pattern. The bedroom door was wide open. Come in, darling. Come in and give old Ma a kiss, then. Ma, wearing a flannel pink nightgown, lay smothered in two feather mattresses, mattresses on the brass bedstead surrounded by large mahogany pieces of furniture. When Sarah bent over her, two mammoth arms brought her face down to Ma's. How you been, Sari, love? She 
She held Sarah away from her, looking into her face, and then hugged her again. Always cheerful you are, Sari. She released Sarah and heaved herself up on her pillows. You ain't a looker like your ma was, Sari, but you're always cheerful. Sarah was used to being told she wasn't pretty like her ma. We can't all be beauties, she said, sitting on the bed. She was unusually abrupt, and this must have registered with Ma Dance, for she suddenly put her swollen hand over Sarah's and clumsily patted her. Don't you worry, girl. You may not be a looker, but my Charlie thinks the world of you. Sarah wriggled uncomfortably. She knew that all the dances took it for granted that one day she and Charlie would be married. Admittedly, Charlie's devotion was balm to her. She had never been transparently worshipped before, and besides, Charlie was nice to look at, blue-eyed and tall, making her feel small and feminine. But the thought of becoming a dance and losing her identity in the teeming family depressed her. Too many things are going to happen to me, she thought. I can't become a dance, not just yet. She smiled weakly. He may not want to marry me, Ma. Of course he will, love. He can't marry you till he finds himself a job, can he? That's why he's not said anything. The dances gained their living largely from Billingsgate, but there were too many dances now for the fish market to provide employment for all of them. Charlie had to find work as and when he could, as temporary porter, drayman, or road sweeper. At least he was more fortunate than over a million of his fellows, for he had a home and sufficient food. Suddenly, Sarah felt suffocated in Ma, in Charlie, in dances. I've got to go, she said, rising. I mustn't be late. Charlie will walk you home, said Ma confidently. Sarah escaped from the room. Charlie was waiting downstairs in cap and overcoat. Let's go for a walk, Sari, he said. I'm going home, she snapped, and immediately felt ashamed when she saw the hurt on his face. But you can walk home with me. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to be rude. Outside, Charlie fell into step beside her. You all right? he asked anxiously. You seem tired. Ma's a bit much at times, ain't she? Oh, Charlie... She was filled with delighted surprise that Charlie had realized what she was feeling. He didn't often follow her moods. She seized his arm and hugged it. She's lovely, Charlie. It's me that's bad-tempered. I've had a dreadful day at school. Miss Bennett said you're not to wait there for me anymore. Said it gave the school a bad name. And then I had to go see some parents. A man there was rude to me. He stopped walking and frowned at her. What man? he asked. There was a meeting going on. This young man seemed to be some kind of leader, and I could tell he didn't like me. Oh, Sarah, said Charlie, you're always imagining things about people. Why shouldn't he like you? He didn't, she said stubbornly. He was foreign, I think. He looked foreign. Ah. Uh, Charlie's frown cleared. Well, that explains it. A foreigner would behave like that. She felt the irritation and frustration that often occurred when Charlie completely missed the point. 
Let's not talk about it anymore, she said, and Charlie smiled and patted her shoulder, having solved the incident to his own satisfaction. When they reached her gate, Charlie bent and kissed her cheek. Don't worry, Sari, not about that foreigner. He watched her pull the string with the key on it through the letterbox, and when, he, when she went in, he waited for a moment. Sarah saw him standing there, looking up at her window. Dear Charlie, she thought affectionately. And then she turned away from the window and forgot him. That man was rude to me, she said to herself. Yes, he definitely was. The following morning was Sarah's day for handing out the hot milk and malt to the children classified by the school doctor as suffering from malnutrition. She hated milk duty because it meant that every sick or undernourished child in the school was gathered together in one classroom. There were days when Sarah felt courageous and handed out the milk cheerfully, trying to imbue the children not only with vitamins but with hope. There were other days where she just felt depressed. The weak, quiet children would grow up to be w into weak, quiet men and women. On these days, there didn't seem any point in trying. Today, with the knowledge that she must face Miss Bennett about Sammy Alexander, the children seemed unbearably slow, moving in a long, shuffling line, and each one taking an unconscionably long time to lick the malt from the spoon and sip the milk from the enamel beakers. When she finally got away, the morning break was nearly at an end. She found Miss Bennett sitting in her room, sipping tea from a bone china cup. She set the cup down. Miss Whitman? Sarah swallowed. Excuse me, headmistress, it's about Sammy Alexander. I went to see his parents, and Mrs. Alexander promised me that he would come back to school this afternoon. Miss Bennett poured more tea. I am delighted to hear it. Sarah's legs began to feel weak. I'm afraid getting him back to school was not simple, she said. His mother agreed to it only if the public thrashing was waived. So I... I promised Mrs. Alexander that there would be no public thrashing. She dared not look at Miss Bennett. The room was so quiet she could hear her own heart thumping. And then there was a violent crash. Miss Bennett had pushed her cup off the end of the desk. You did what? Sarah dared to look up. Miss Bennett's face was white, and her eyes were concentrated into small, brilliant points of fury. I had to promise, Sarah gabbled in terror. Otherwise, Mrs. Alexander would never have let him come back. She agrees that he must be punished, but privately. Miss Bennett's face did not change. I shall send Mr. Janning to collect Samuel Alexander as soon as he arrives at school. On your way back to your classroom, please tell the rest of the staff that I want a full assembly after the dinner break. Sarah was terrified when Miss Bennett's eyes of the violence she had always sensed in this woman. She was also shocked at the significance of Miss Bennett's words. 
I gave my word, she said. I know I had no right to give it, but this means I should be punished, not the boy. Miss Whitman, asked the headmistress, your entire conduct in this matter is impertinent and undisciplined. I shall expect you to sit on the platform and, if necessary, hold the boy. I'm afraid I can't do that, said Sarah coldly. Suddenly, she wasn't afraid anymore. She stared with loathing directly into Miss Bennett's face. I shall stay with my class. She turned and walked out of the room. And when she heard Miss Bennett scream, Come here at once, she took no notice. She walked slowly back to her classroom, making calculations on how the money she had saved could see her through unemployment. She'll have to report me to the committee before I'm sacked, she thought. So I'll have at least another week's salary, if I'm lucky. But what am I going to tell Pa? When Sarah led her class into the assembly hall, she was aware that Miss Bennett was looking at her. She stared coldly back, daring the headmistress to call her up onto the platform where Sammy stood. Miss Bennett looked away, recognizing something implacable in her youngest teacher. Then she picked up the cane and turned it to Sammy. Hold up your right hand, she ordered. Sammy was small and weedy. One sock was wrinkled down over his ankle, and his face was very frightened. He extended his fingers towards Miss Bennett. Sarah saw her swing her whole body back with the cane, and Sarah closed her eyes. Now the other hand. She opened her eyes. The coil of hair had come unwound from Miss Bennett's head and swung every time she threw her body violently back with the cane. On her face was an expression of delight. Sammy was white and his teeth were chattering, but he did not cry. Miss Bennett finished and replaced the cane on the table beside the Bible. She lifted her hands and recoiled her hair. Let nothing of this kind occur again, she said. School dismissed. Feeling tired and old, Sarah led her class from the hall. All the way to the Alexander, she prayed they would be out, though, though that would only delay facing Mrs. Alexander until another evening. Her steps grew slower as she mounted the stone stairway. She knocked on the door. It opened almost immediately, and Mr. Alexander stared coldly out at her. Yes. Could I speak to your wife, Mr. Alexander? Didn't you say quite enough last time you came? She could feel her face coloring. Then the door opened wider, and Mrs. Alexander stood there. When she saw Sarah, she wiped her hands nervously down her overall. Mr. Alexander put his arm round this, his wife's shoulder. It's the school teacher come to make more trouble, he said. Well, there's no need for all the neighbors to know about it, Mrs. Alexander opened the door wider. Come in if you must. 
Miserably, Sarah stepped inside. When she saw the foreign young man sitting at the table, she realized she was going to be spared nothing. I'm sorry, she said. I didn't know you had company, Mr. Alexander. I'll come back another time. No, you say what you've come to say. I'm not ashamed of my friends knowing the kind of treatment my son gets from his school teacher. Yes, but as it's a private family business site, it's a bit more private than my boy had when he was walloped, ain't it? Mr. Alexander shouted. You only got one witness. My son had the whole school. Mrs. Alexander put her hand on his arm. You'll only make it bad for Sammy, George, she said tremulously. Sarah realized that in Mrs. Alexander's eyes, she was a monster to be classified alongside Miss Bennet. Deeply hurt, she said. I never wanted him thrashed. I tried to stop it. Looks like it, don't it? said Mr. Alexander nastily. Her temper flared. I didn't have to come here, Mr. Alexander. I did my best to stop the public punishment, and I failed. I should not have made promises I couldn't keep, so I came here to say that I'm sorry, and if it'll make you feel any better, I can tell you that I'm likely to lose my job over the whole business. She was nearly crying. I'll go now. She strode to the door and opened it. Good day to you, and I hope you and your friend there have enjoyed being unpleasant to me. She darted a brief glance back at the young man who was staring down at the table. Then he was blotted out by the figure of Mrs. Alexander. Don't mind, Mr. Alexander, she whispered. He didn't mean to be rude. It's just he's got a lot on his mind at the moment with a strike coming and all. Sarah tried to smile. I really did try, Mrs. Alexander. Mrs. Alexander nodded. That's all right, dear. I know what Miss Bennett's like, and I hope you don't really lose your job. Sarah walked away down the stairs. She hoped fervently she would never have to come up them again. Two days later, she was putting her books together in the staff room when Miss Enderby twittered in. Miss Whitman, a man is asking for you at the staff entrance. And really, Miss Bennett, you know she doesn't like it. Since Sarah's trial of strength with Miss Bennett, the headmistress had simply ignored her. She supposed it was just a case of waiting until the report to the committee filtered through. Sarah tried not to think what would happen after that. Once she was blacklisted, it would be almost impossible to find another post. Frantically, she stuffed the last of her books into her bag. Drat Charlie. She forced her arm into one sleeve of her coat jammed her hat down and ran for the door, trying to put the other arm in her coat as she ran. There was no sign of Miss Bennett in the passage. She quickly slammed the outer door of the staff entrance behind her. Then, when she saw who was waiting for her, she stopped. It was the foreign young man, bareheaded, leaning against the railings. His hair was dark, 
and very curly. Hello, he said. I have something to say to you. Desperation finally got her arm into her coat. Well, say it somewhere else, please, not in front of the school. I'm not supposed to have people wait for me outside the school. She walked away towards a side road. The studs in the young man's boots made a ringing noise on the cobbles. He was watching her, and although he wasn't smiling, did he ever smile? For once, he wasn't absorbed in his own thoughts, either. Automatically, she began to follow her normal route home. I decided I had to say something to you, said the young man. You see, I know you're a bourgeois do-gooder who is grinding down the faces of the poor, but I thought it was morally very brave of you to go and see the Alexanders. She was astonished. A bourgeois do-gooder? What are you talking about? He began to walk faster, waving his hands excitedly. Bourgeois, he said. Middle-class bourgeois education, and you come into poor people's homes to interfere with their children. You think you're being kind, but you treat poor people as you would a dog or a horse. Give them enough to eat and lots of discipline, and they'll be all right. Sarah took a deep breath. I think... You're the rudest, most objectionable young man I have ever met. You were rude to me the first time you saw me. You don't know anything at all about me. You're... you're rude. He stopped walking and faced her, looking surprised. Was I rude? he asked. I mean, how was I rude? Angry and astonished, Sarah fought for words. You don't tell people they're bourgeois and face grinders when you don't know anything about them. You don't even know my name. Yes, I do, he said imperturbably. It's Sarah Whitman, and I know lots about you from the young Alexanders. You're always talking about Africa and India and places where there are mountains and deserts. You're good at reading, but nobody in the class really listens because they like watching your face when you read. They like you, even though you're bourgeois. They're too young to know that you're one of the enemy. Goodbye, said Sarah, quickening her stride. So did the young man, and almost at once they came to Aunt Flory's, and she had to stop and fumble with the gate. He looked at the three feet of concrete that separated the gate from the narrow terraced house. You live here? he asked. Yes, she answered savagely. I sit in my little upstairs room and brood over new ways of grinding the faces of the poor. He looked very uncomfortable. Well, I still think you're bourgeois, he muttered, all the same. You are very brave going to see the Alexanders. There was definitely something different about him. His accents and the way he used his hands when he was talking. You're not English, are you? said Sarah. She hadn't meant to sound patronizing, but he flushed. I was born two days after my family landed here, and that makes me just as English as you. 
He seemed to be sensitive about it, and impulsively she put her hand up and touched his arm. Don't be hurt. She could see that for him. Being called, being called a foreigner was far worse than it was for her being called bourgeois. I was just interested because I love talking about countries over the sea. At that, he smiled. A warm, bright, exciting smile that completely changed him making him seem young and full of fun. You've a lovely face, Sarah Whitman. He gazed down at her for a moment, and then she became aware that Aunt Flory's lace curtains were stirring. But because his smile was so wide and infectious, she had to smile back. I must go in now, she said. Goodbye. He stuffed his hands into his pockets and walked jauntily away down the road. When he came to the end, he looked back and then vanished around the corner. And I quite forgot to ask his name, she said dreamily to a curious Aunt Flory as she opened the door. I completely forgot to ask his name. That's the end of chapter one.